Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning, Luke 9 in your Bible, so if you could join me there. Uh, the phrase is often said that all good things must come to an end. Uh, I don't know where that came from. All good things must come to an end. Birthdays come and then the party is over. Vacations, right, come to a close. Wonderful life stages, you look back with fondness on them, they don't last forever. Good books, and this is one that I feel strongly about, good books have a final page. I'm the kind of person I read, and then I get sad when the book is over, when the story ends. And today is the the final sermon in our series on the first part of Luke's Gospel. Today we come to the end of the great Galilean ministry of Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up with the great Galilean ministry of Jesus. We're going to hit pause on our sermon series through Luke's Gospel. And next week we're going to start a sermon series on the life of Abraham. What happens next in Luke's gospel is we begin the journey to Jerusalem, which forms the heart of of Luke's gospel, really the end of chapter 9 into the the end of chapter 19. We're going to pick that back up at a later date and do a sermon series on the the journey to Jerusalem. Um, So today we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the great Galilean ministry. We've seen Jesus work miracles. We've seen him feed 5,000 people. We've watched as he's calmed a storm, as he's raised Jairus' daughter, as he's raised the the only son of the widow of Nain, from from the dead. We've listened as he's preached the the great sermon on the plain. There's a reason why it's called the great Galilean ministry. Jesus has reached the height of his popularity. And in fact, last week we had the, the account of the transfiguration. Right, just an incredible moment that the disciples tried to sort of freeze. Right, they they, they said, "Let's just hit pause and and make this moment last." But even that moment came to an end. All good things must come to an end. Of course, there's an exception to that. One day we will be with Christ, and the the good thing of being in His presence will never come to an end. But this side of eternity, good things come to an end. Sermon series come to an end. You're like, well, this one I haven't. It's not really. It's been long and tedious. Okay, well. Bear with me, right? The great Galilean ministry of Jesus comes to an end, a transition, the transfiguration. And the glory of of, of the mountaintop, the glory of seeing Jesus and all of his majesty, Elijah and Moses being present with him, comes to an end. And Jesus then descends from the mountain back down into the valley. The transfiguration was a rare moment of splendor. It was a brief peek through the curtains at the coming glory of Jesus. The disciples, well, at least... Peter and James and John have gotten to see the glory of the coming kingdom uh, in all of his majesty. We have that phrase, mountaintop experience. How many of you all have heard the phrase, mountaintop experience? It kind of comes from the scriptural idea where Moses is on the Mount Sinai. He sees the glory of God. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration see the glory of Christ. These, these, these rare moments of seeing the glory of God on, on mountaintops. But mountaintop experiences don't last forever. Maybe in your Christian life you've had some of those. Some times where you're like, man, my fellowship with God was incredibly sweet. I saw him answer prayer. I saw his glory, saw his majesty on display. I, I, I felt his presence in ways that were just unprecedented. But here's the reality. Mountaintop experiences don't last forever. So as Jesus descends down into the valley, he leaves the glorious mountaintop and he encounters the realities of a fallen world. He's going to be faced with sickness. He's going to be faced with unbelief. He's going to be faced with pride and with brokenness. You see, as wonderful as mountaintop experiences are, the reality is we don't actually live the Christian life on the mountaintop. 
right? We, we don't actually go sort of from one miracle to the next miracle, from one glorious moment to the next glorious moment where we're just sort of walking six feet off the ground. But rather, most of the Christian life, beloved, is lived on Monday mornings, right? It's lived in the ordinary. And I one time had sort of a crisis of faith in my life where I was like, if this whole Christianity thing is real, if Jehovah God is real and I'm a Christian and his spirit is dwelling in me, why is my life so boring, right? Why don't I see miracles? Why don't I see awesome stuff happening? And then it hit me. We live the Christian life in the ordinary. In fact, we display the glory of God in the ordinary. If we trusted God just because we saw amazing things all the time, where would the faith be in that? The Christian life is made up of multitudes of often monotonous moments. It's made up of decades of often just dogged diligence doing the same thing over and over again. It's going to work. It's changing diapers. It's teaching your kids. It's being faithful in the little things. It's coming to church on a rainy Sunday morning. It's tuning in on a live stream so you can worship with God's people even from a distance. Here's my point this morning. Here's the big idea this morning. God calls you and me to live for his glory in the valley. Right? He calls for us to live for his glory in the ordinary. And here's the awesome thing. The Bible actually anticipates this. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through Luke 9, verses 37 to 50, and we're going to see Jesus coming down off the mountain and being confronted with this, this, this clash, this contrast between the glory of the mountain and the gloom of the valley. And he's going to give us a model for how we live in the valley. There's an incredible painting by, I believe it was uh, by Rembrandt, um, I think, one of, one of the great Renaissance painters called the transfiguration and it's actually two panels there's the upper panel that has jesus on the mountaintop in the, in the glory and then the, the bottom panel has the account that we're going to pick up with jesus coming down to the chaos of the valley and any the artist puts those two together sort of as a contrast yet in both of them the glory of jesus shines through so pick up with me in luke 9 we're going to be starting in verse 37 and it came to pass that on the next day Okay, the day after the transfiguration. Transfiguration likely happened at night. It's the next morning. The disciples now are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. That when they were come down from the hill, from the mountain is literally the word, much people met him. There's a huge crowd that's waiting for Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us that they come running to Jesus, and they're amazed. They're full of shock. And behold, a man of the company, of the crowd, cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he's mine only child, and lo, a spirit taketh that it seizes him. And he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, and he foameth again, and bruising, bruising him hardly departeth from him. And I besought, I begged thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil, the demon, threw him, that is the boy, down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. So as Jesus comes down into the valley, as he comes back into sort of away from the, the moment of glory on the mountain, he's confronted with the scene. And it gives us our, our, our first requirement for living for God's glory in the ordinary is this. Living for God's glory in the ordinary, in the valley, requires confidence in God's power. Requires confidence in God's power. Requires faith, if you will, in a word. The, the scene here is set in direct contrast to the Mount of Transfiguration. We're right to pair these two events together. The, the phrase, it's the next day. 
both here in, Ma- in Luke, then again in Mark, and also in Matthew, puts this right after the previous event. The painter was right to put these together. It's like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, and what's he met by? Chaos in the camp. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, met with chaos down below. Those who should have known better, who should have been faithful, are being unfaithful. Now, there's this huge crowd that comes running up to Jesus. Mark tells us that there are scribes who are standing around who are criticizing and scorning and mocking the disciples, the other nine disciples who are down in the valley. These surly scribes stand to one side with arms crossed. This huge seething crowd is sort of in a semicircle around the nine apostles, and in the middle is this poor man and this boy. And this, this one man comes out of the crowd, a single man, cries out. Now that word cried out, we just, it's easier to read over because we see that in the Bible a lot. The sense of that word is, is to, 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 to scream out, to cry out in intense emotion. This dad is desperate. So Jesus comes down, we see this father's desperation. He's pleading. He's anguished. He begs for Jesus to act. Notice what he says in verse 38. Master, the title of respect, I beseech thee, I, I ask of you, I beg you, Look upon my son. He's desperate and he, ba- he begs for Jesus to act. He says, look upon my son. Now, he's not calling for Jesus to just uh, cl- glance an eye on that. But, you know, you have, you have something you need help with and you ask a friend, hey, could you come look at, the, could you come look at my radiator for me? You're not just having him be like, yep, that's a radiator, all right? No, you want them to come with tools and repair it. That's how we use that phrase at times, right? That's what he's saying. I want you to look upon my son with mercy and compassion. This is almost a prayer that you would pray to deity in the Bible. I think this man recognizes there's something different about Jesus of Nazareth. He can help where no one else can. And there's a little phrase at the end that Luke alone records for us, at the end of verse 38, for he is mine only child. That's the, the word, by the way, translated in John as only begotten, right? This unique child, his only son. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that he draws attention to the fact that Jesus does a miracle for someone's only child. Luke's unique in mentioning that. It, it shows us the emotion and the heart of Jesus Christ. He's not just doing a miracle for anyone, but this is a desperate situation. Someone's only child. This is his pride and joy. This is the one who he delights in, the one who, who, who he spends his time with. The, the Old Testament talks about the mourning as for an only child, that when an only child dies, when an only child is in, in, a, in a desperate situation, the mourning and the grief is multiplied. It goes up exponentially. For any, child, any parent to lose a child is a heartbreaking thing, but all the more so when it is an only child. So this is, this is meant to show the desperation, the pain, the heartbreak of the situation, and, and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 39 gives us the sense of it. The man is explaining to Jesus, Behold, there's a spirit that seizes the child, and he cries out suddenly. It tears at him. That is, it, it, it takes control, and he foams at the mouth, and it bruises him. It, it crushes him before it departs. He's describing a, a, a demonic possession here. Now, the symptoms here are quite s- similar to some epileptic seizures. The demon takes control of the boy's body in such a way that brings about these kinds of symptoms. But understand this, this is not merely a physical situation. This is not merely a, a physical illness. This is a this is spiritual oppression that has sort of physical manifestations. He says a spirit, okay, this is from the demonic realm. Jesus refers to the unclean spirit. Uh, there's a demon that is referred to in verse 42, an unclean spirit. This is clearly uh, an agent of Satan who comes to try to dehumanize and to oppress and to destroy. 
According to Mark's gospel, the demon also took away the boy's ability to speak or hear. This is just a horrific, tragic situation. It's meant to show to us just how awful this was. So the boy is dominated by a demon, a demon who throws him into convulsions, who throws him into seizures. Mark's gospel also records for us that the demon will try to throw the boy into fires and into bodies of water to kill him. It's absolutely horrible. And then when the demon leaves him at the end of verse 39, it says, And bruising him hardly departeth from him. That word bruising, it means the word to crush together, to cause destruction of something by making it come apart. It just tears at the boy. Hey, this is life in the valley. This is life in a fallen world, a world in which there is evil and wickedness. We're not so naive as to believe that the Christian life means sunshine and roses. The immunity from the world's evil, we live in an evil world. We live in a fallen world. And here's the thing that is so amazing. The Bible addresses that world head on. It doesn't say, become a Christian and just imagine away all of your problems. It doesn't say, become a Christian and speak your best life now into existence. No, the Bible speaks into a world that is fallen and dominated by sin and evil. We see it all around us. You turn on the news and you see what's happening in Afghanistan. Evil, right? The, the wickedness Uh, The depravity of a human heart where someone would be so captivated by deception that they would strap a bomb to their body and go to the gate of the the Kabul airport and blow themselves up and kill 120 other people with them. It's evil. We see evil and wickedness in our world. Evil and wickedness all around us. We see the fallenness of our world, the fact that our world is not yet redeemed. In fact, there's a hurricane going on this morning. Now, the hurricane is not like personified as an evil having a soul. But the book of Romans says that the creation is under a curse right now, right? There is destruction and sorrow and grief in our world. If anything, we have learned in the last year and a half with this pandemic, we live in a fallen world. And this is what Jesus faces head on. He is the sinless son of God who comes in on mission from the Father to do the Father's will. And he, he confronts this head on. But I think the greatest tragedy is verse 40. I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. So Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. This guy goes to the next best thing. Hey, the followers of Jesus. Now look back at the beginning of this chapter, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So Jesus gave them power and authority to do precisely what they could not do here. What happened? Did the power kind of wear off? Did the, the energy drink kind of lose its, lose its potency? Did the batteries go flat? No, I think what happened, uh, based on verse 41, is the disciples' confidence in Christ began to wane. You can imagine how this happens. They go around preaching and casting out demons, and they're like, hey, we're actually pretty good at this. This stuff works. Like, we go around, and we lay hands on people, and boom, demons depart. And as time goes on, they begin to trust their gifts more than the gift giver. They begin to trust themselves more than they trust Jesus. Jesus locates their failure in verse 41, not in a lack of ability, but in a lack of faith. So the disciples, the nine apostles, as they go along casting out demons, begin to trust in themselves more and more. And finally, they run into a situation that they can't handle on their own. And here's a desperate father. Here is a a demonized boy, someone who is oppressed and in great suffering, and they're no longer able to help. And this father is at complete wit's end because he can't get any help from those who should help him. 
The disciples' failure is, is one of inability. He says, I came to your disciples and they couldn't do it. They did not have the ability to do it. Listen, they never had the ability to do this on their own. It was always Jesus' power channeled through them. And after a while, I think they began to believe their own press, began to think that, hey, we can do this. There's something special about us. Began to trust in themselves. In Jesus' absence, this dad had approached the disciples, but they had failed. You know, maybe he's beginning to think, maybe all this is a lie. I heard about Jesus of Nazareth, but maybe he's no different than the emptiness and the hopelessness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What's at stake here? The disciples' failure called into question Jesus' ability. They represent Jesus, and their failure to help someone who Jesus would have helped is reflecting badly on Jesus. Here's someone who comes to the followers of Jesus and is let down by them. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been let down by followers of Jesus? Have you ever been disappointed by those who claim to believe in biblical Christianity? I think probably many of us have, most of us have. Maybe you, those of you watching later on on the live stream, you're watching the sermon somewhere else and you're out of church. You're like, man, there's hypocrites in church. There's someone who wronged me. There was someone who did this and did that. Multitudes of people let down by faithless followers of Jesus. Here, Jesus hadn't even left earth yet, and his followers are already leaving people disappointed. Listen, if that's you, do not let the failures of Jesus' followers blind you to the perfection of Jesus' glory. And here it is happening while Jesus is still on earth. I'm not going to church. It's all a bunch of hypocrites. I agree, right? We're all sinners here today, and we're going to let people down. I am going to let you down at some point, but Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never fail you. Don't reject the truth of Christianity because of the untruthfulness of some of his followers. That doesn't make any sense. So that's what is at stake here. Now, verse 41 is a blistering denunciation from Jesus. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. Who is he speaking about? Well, I think he's speaking about the entire crowd. Here's the scribes over here like, oh, yeah, we look at Jesus' followers are failing. Ha, they're, they're gloating in the failures of other people. By the way, there are sort of entire segments of Christianity. People sort of make a living in, in, in gloating about the failures of Christians. Listen, there's times when sin needs to be exposed. But it's another thing to simply make that your entire ministry and run a discernment blog where all you do is go around and nitpicking other people's failures and, and oh, look, they're failing and I feel good about myself because I don't mess up like they do. That, that's what the scribes are doing. The crowd is sort of sitting there watching a show. Hey, crowds love a good fight, and there's a good sort of squabble going on between the scribes and the disciples of Jesus. A crowd shows up. If you want a crowd to show up, start a fight, right? Start an argument, and everybody will come and watch. There's those people who sort of love to just sort of traverse Facebook and post that little gif under there with the guy eating popcorn when there's a good argument in the comments. It's sort of fun, right? There's this big crowd here watching the argument. There's the disciples. They're unable. But I think more than anything, this is, this is right on the disciples. They don't have trust and confidence in Christ and in his power, and therefore they are failing. This condemnation applies, yes, to the whole crowd, but specifically to the lack of faith the disciples have in this moment. Listen, the disciples failed to cast the demon out not because they tried, but because they did not trust. Right? They failed not because they tried, but because they did not trust, relying on themselves. In Mark's account, Jesus comes around at the end of this event and says, this kind comes not out except by prayer. Right? They, 
They did not trust, and so therefore they did not pray. And because they did not pray, they did not have divine power to do what he called them to do. They've got an I've got this mentality. Listen, an I've got this mentality is dangerous in a number of areas. Uh, I've got this is always a dangerous thing before you go and like sort of cross eight lanes of traffic like you're a NASCAR driver, right? Like when you're a teenager, you're like, I've got this, going and horns are blaring. That's dangerous. Uh, I've got this is dangerous when, you, when it's a man attempting to carry a sheet of plywood up a rickety ladder propped up on paint cans, right? You've seen all those videos and those memes about like why women live longer than men and people doing dumb stuff thinking, hey, I've got this. If I've got this is dangerous in the physical realm, how much more dangerous is it in the spiritual realm? I've got this. I can do ministry on my own. I've done this before. I've preached a sermon. I've shared the gospel. I've taught a Sunday school class before. I'm just going to wing it because I've got this. We begin to rely on our own ability rather than on Christ's ability. But he adds, oh, notice this, verse 41, oh, faithless, okay, unbelieving. He's not saying that they have no faith whatsoever, but rather in this moment they're unbelieving. They, they do believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they've, they're, they're having a momentary lapse of confidence in him. And he says, perverse generation. I think that's expanding out to the scribes. This, by the way, echoes what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. At the end of his life, he's looking back on the generation that failed to trust God during the wilderness wanderings. And he calls them a faithless and crooked generation. See, when we don't trust God, we will always trust something else. People are like, I, I, I'm not a person of faith. I, you know, I believe in science kind of idea. Well, there is your object of your faith. By the way, there's nothing wrong with, with science. It's a good thing. It's an avenue of coming to know things about God's world. But people will say, I don't believe in God. You're going to trust something else. You're going to trust yourself. You're going to trust your own judgment. You're going to trust what other people say. Here's my point. When we don't trust God, it will lead us off in bad directions, right? God is ultimately the object of our, of our confidence, and so their faithlessness leads, leads us away to being bent away from God. By the way, this is who we are without Christ. Our hearts are bent away from God. All we, like what? Sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's the essence of sin, saying, I want to do what I want to do, and I've got to bent away from God. That's what my heart is like until it is renewed by the Spirit of Christ through the power of the gospel. So I don't trust, and my heart is bent away from God so that it will not and it cannot trust him without a work of the Spirit. We trust ourselves, we trust our idols instead of God, and we are led away into sin. And that is why the gospel requires of us a new heart. It requires of us that we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So Jesus then goes on to say, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? That is, put up with you. Thankfully, in his kindness, he puts up with us for a long, long time. He does not write us off. He is patient and he is merciful. So living in the valley is going to require confidence in God's power. Look how this power is displayed in verse 42. And while he was yet a coming, the, the demon threw him down. So Jesus now is approaching the child, and the demon is like, here comes Jesus, my one final last-ditch effort to thwart him and destroy this child, and it tear him. And then notice what Jesus does. He rebuked the unclean spirit. He healed the child. He delivered him again to his father. Complete and total restoration. Isn't that beautiful? Just a word. He rebukes the demon. He has authority even over the demonic realm. What a comfort that is. It's not as if there's a battle between God and Satan and the outcome is uncertain. Rather, God rules over all things, including over the demonic realm. Ultimately, everything in the universe must bow the knee to King Jesus 
And we see that happening even here. Even this demon must respond to the command of Christ. That means this, that evil in our world, though it may seem to be running rampant, is still under the authority of God. That's comforting, isn't it, to know that the evil and demonic, the demonic realm is ultimately under the authority of God. So Jesus rebukes it, a display of divine power. Then it says he healed the child. There's the, this physical damage that has been done by the demon's work in the child. And Jesus heals him completely. He never again had another seizure. He never again had the kind of, the kind of thing described in verse 39, completely and totally healed. And then he restored him again to his father. It, the father, has a sense, in a sense, has felt like he has lost his son, but now he is restored. This is full and complete restoration. This is what the power of God does. It's what the power of God does. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God is still in the business of demonstrating this kind of power, even in the valley, every time a sinner repents and believes and are made new by God's power. So living in the valley, no, we don't see the glory of Christ shimmering like a strike of lightning like they saw on the mountaintop, but we do see it shining through even in the wickedness and the darkness of this world. It requires confidence in God's power. We are confronted in the valley with suffering. We're confronted in the valley with unbelief. We're confronted in the valley with evil all around us. Yet we must maintain a confidence in God's power, knowing that one day he's going to come back and say, I'm going to make all things new. This here is a harbinger of what he's going to do one day. He's going to remake the entire universe, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be no more suffering, no more death, and no more sin. We've got to trust that power trust that those promises but secondly say wow we're going to be here all day the longest point right there um, we're just going to go in sort of the 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 way that the, the text moves living in the valley for the glory of god walking through the ordinary in a way that brings honor to christ requires not only confidence in god's power we see displayed there requires secondly acceptance of god's plan so notice verse 43, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. So the crowd is just astonished. They are blown away. They are flabbergasted. They are knocked senseless by what they are seeing. An absolute incredible demonstration of divine power, divine glory. And you can just imagine the scene where the boy is healed. Again, Mark's gospel gives us a, a, a vivid picture. When Jesus cast the demons out, the boy falls down as if he is dead, and everybody thinks he is dead. And then Jesus raises him up, and you can just hear the, oh, the gasps through the crowd. You can see that the Pharisees step back in shock and horror as they realize they've been had again, they've been defeated again by Jesus. I can imagine that the crowd breaks out in applause, and there is dancing and singing and excitement as the, the father runs and scoops his child up and hugs and restoration. And in the middle of this adulation, verse 43 goes right into this, but while they wondered every one at all the things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, verse 44, let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not the saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. So even while the applause is still going, Jesus turns around to his disciples and says, Guys, this adulation is not going to last long. I am going to the cross. The Father's plan is not that I, that I enjoy constant adulation, but that I go to the cross and that I suffer for the sins of the world. That is still the plan. Right? That's, that's the plan. 
Even in the midst of adulation, Jesus reminds them that adulation and applause is going to be short-lived. Even as the laughter still filled the air, Jesus pointed to the coming grief that he would face at the cross. Why does he do this? Because the disciples have a propensity to sort of believe their own press, to assume that, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, they got that much right, to think, man, the kingdom's going to be coming really, really soon, and we're going to be super-duper important, and we're going to rule and reign, and we're going to get all the glory of everything that's promised in the Old Testament now. And Jesus has to remind them again and again and again, and by the way, they don't get it again and again. He said, no, I'm going to the cross. The cross comes before the kingdom, right? Suffering comes before glory. I've got to pay for the sins of the world. I've got to be rejected. And then I'll be raised, and then I'll be exalted, and then the kingdom's going to come. But they're so hardwired into anticipating someone who's going to defeat Rome. They're so hardwired into anticipating someone who's going to come and raise Israel from the dust that this is lost on them. So Jesus steps and says, hey, listen, adulation is going to be short-lived. Verse 44, even while all the applause is going on, he says to the disciples, let these sayings sink down into your ears. Uh, literally, the sense of this, these words must enter your ears, must be placed into your ears. It's a really Hebrew idiomatic way of saying, you need to remember this, right? It's sort of like, remember George H.W. Bush, read my lips, no new taxes. It's sort of like, listen up to what I'm saying, remember what I'm going to say, believe what I'm going to say. It's, it's, it's put these things into your heart. Take this and hang it in the hallway of your memory. This is to be important. This is to be at the forefront of your thinking. This is to come down into your heart. He says, you guys might think this adulation is going to last, but read my lips. Hear me loud and clear. I am going to the cross. That's the Father's plan, and you need to accept it. You need to embrace it. I think like the disciples, we're prone to have the same type of thinking. Okay, we're on the other side of the cross. We're like, man, why did these knuckleheads not get it? Because he told them over and over again. Hey, we don't get it in our lives. Don't we often think that we are owed a suffering-free Christian life? Right? Suffering comes along, heartache comes along in our lives, and we're like, God, it's a mistake. This shouldn't be happening. Like, I thought I was supposed to know the blessing of God in my life and that my job was supposed to go great, that I was going to get a pay raise, that I was going to have a wonderful relationship, that I was going to get married, and everything was going to go well, and now I'm going through suffering. Now I'm dealing with sickness. Now I'm having to be in quarantine. Now I'm seeing loved ones around me whose lives are being cut short. Now I'm dealing with cancer. Now I'm dealing with, with a family member who, is, who, who, who sort of turned their back on me. What's going on? But Jesus tells us what's going on in the world you will have tribulation right be of good cheer i have overcome the world we're, we're, we're told to expect suffering this side of heaven we're told to anticipate things won't always be easy that we we're not owed to just make it to heaven on on beds of ease but we may have to sail through bloody seas as the hymn writer said we often get horrified and shocked when we as christians aren't accepted by the culture like, oh my goodness, the culture doesn't view us as, as important anymore. We're not given special treatment. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, life in the valley, life on this side of heaven, is one in which we must submit to the Father's plan. For Jesus, that meant the cross. And remember what we said a couple weeks ago. I'm not just sort of moralizing this text. Jesus himself linked up the teaching about the cross with the nature of discipleship. Look back with me in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Crystal clear. 
And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus goes to a cross. We who follow him will also walk the way to the cross. Jesus suffered, and we who follow him can also expect suffering. There's a direct link between the mission of Jesus and the model of our discipleship. So the cross is certain. Now, look back in verse 44. When he says, let these sayings sink down into your ears, the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He's saying the cross is certain. This is not an, there's not an if about this. This is simply a, a when. This is going to happen. There is sort of a magnetic focus in Luke's gospel looking towards Calvary. And we will get this when we do our series on the journey to Jerusalem, that the focus becomes clearer and clearer and clearer on the cross. There's a beeline being made to Calvary in this, in this book. The Son of Man shall be delivered. Notice that's a passive voice verb, not that uh, you know, someone's going to seize him, but he's going to be delivered. Who's the agent who's doing the delivering? Right? Who, who's the one who's making this happen? This is what is known uh, in, in syntax as a theological or a divine passive. Rather than saying God's name directly, rather than saying God will hand him over, you say he will be handed over, and you say by whom? By God. God alone is the one who has the authority and the ability to orchestrate all the events of the cross. Think about everything that had to fall into place for the cross to happen. Jesus and his disciples have to be at Jerusalem at the right time. There has to be the, the, the Sanhedrin being made up of the exact number of people who it was made up of who would reject Christ. You had to have the Romans who were in control. You had to have Judas Iscariot. You had to have Peter denying, denying Christ. All of these things that had to happen, part of the Father's plan. There's only one person who has the wisdom and the sovereignty to put all those pieces of the puzzle together at the right time and the right moment for Rome to be ruling the world, for literally the fates of millions of people to align just so for this to happen. The Son of Man must be delivered. The cross is certain. You say, that seems kind of harsh that God would be the one who would see to it that his son would be slain. Yet Isaiah 53 tells us this, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 and verse 12, for it has pleased the Lord to bruise him. Say, who, who killed Jesus? Well, yeah, the Jewish people, they handed him over. The Roman soldiers, they executed him. In a sense, we, our sins, nailed him to the cross. But ultimately, it was the Father slaughtering his own son for your sins and my sins. That is incredible. That God so hates sin and so loves sinners that he would have his own son killed so that we could go free. That's the cost of redemption. This shouts the good news of the gospel that all who believe can be forgiven because Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross by divine design. He went to the cross to satisfy God's holy wrath against sin so we could be forgiven. And there's no question about it. It's the Father's certain plan. So what is Jesus saying to the disciples? That's the plan. You guys need to embrace this and accept it course the disciples wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't get it they would they would no jesus has got to be another way in the other gospels when jesus first predicts it peter's like not so lord that won't happen to you and jesus has to say to him get thee behind me satan you're trying to thwart the plan that god has to redeem mankind the disciples don't get it. look at verse 45 but they understood not the saying they didn't get it they're like we don't know what you're talking about that you're going to be handed over into the hands of men and it was hidden from them. Again, a passive voice verb. The other passive voice verb was divine. This one probably also is divine. God is sort of the one who has not yet opened their eyes. In order that they perceived it not. Again, that is a purpose statement. 
It's hidden so that they would not understand. This would not make sense to the disciples until the resurrection. In, in Luke 24, Jesus is the one who opens their eyes. Just jump over there with me. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 44. This is, this is Easter night. This is that resurrection Sunday. Jesus is meeting with the disciples. And he said unto them, verse 44, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. Hey, that's what he's doing here, saying it's got to happen. Which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then notice verse 45. Then opened he their, uh, opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Right? Until he turns on the light bulb, they're in the dark. They're like, oh, what are you talking? We don't, we don't understand what you're talking about. By the way, that's true of all of us. None of us have this natural ability to understand and receive and welcome the gospel. God's got to hit the light switch for us, right? God's got to do a work in our hearts. God's got to draw us to himself. There's nobody out there who's just on their own being like, oh, yeah, I just came up with the gospel. We only get it by way of divine revelation through the scriptures and by the spirit of God. Suffering, Jesus says, is going to have to happen first. And in the valley, you're going to have to accept my plan even when you don't understand it. Right? The disciples didn't understand what the plan was, yet he calls them to accept it and take it by faith. You know, in a very real way, that's where you and I find ourselves. We're on this side of glory. We're walking through the Calvary Road, following in the, the bloody footsteps of Christ. Yet Paul says this in Romans 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Just as it was for Christ, after the cross was the resurrection and the ascension and glory, so for us, after suffering, we too have glory. We groan, longing for it now. We deal now with difficulty. We deal now with pain. We deal now with rejection. We deal now with persecution. We deal now with departures and goodbyes. And it is all part of the Father's plan for us to accept, for us to trust. So if that was the plan for Christ, surely it is also the plan for Christians. Living in the valley requires that we, therefore, accept the Father's plan on a couple of levels. One of them is accept the plan of redemption. There is not an alternate plan for anyone to be saved. Right? It's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that anyone can be forgiven. Would you receive that by faith and in repentance? But also accepting his plan, what was true for Jesus, in a sense, is true for us. We walk through suffering, and then we have glory. Finally, we see that living in the valley requires the humility of God's people. We're not called to walk through the, the valley alone. We're not called to live this life after the transfiguration that they, that they do this alone. We do it in community. Look in verse 46. Then there arose a reasoning, and that word literally is a dispute, a dialogue, but one in which there's a, uh, you know, when people say, we're, we were having a discussion. They're like, yeah, no, that was an argument. That, that's sort of the sense here. They're having a discussion. Then there arose a, a discussion, a dispute, an argument among them. Which of them should be the greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, and that's actually the same Greek word as reasoning in verse 46. The argument that's rooted in their heart took a child and set him by him. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you the same shall be great. And John answered and said, 
Master, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. See the, just the incredible pride of the disciples here, right? What, what drives this desire for who's going to be greatest is pride. Um, they still, by the way, don't get it. They're still thinking we're going to be great and the kingdom's going to roll in any minute. Since we've been following Jesus from the beginning, we're going to get prominence in the kingdom. So which of us is going to be the greatest? Instead of contemplating Jesus' clear prediction of the cross, they dispute with each other about who is going to be top dog. They're still expecting glory now without suffering. They, they don't get it. They felt like they'd achieved elite status, that they were insiders, that they were in what C.S. Lewis called the, the inner ring, right? That we're kind of on the inside and everybody's on the outs. By the way, being on the inside, being in the inner circle is only fun if everyone else is excluded. That's how that works. They're like, we're, we're on the inside, but which of us are really going to be better than even the others? They'd been chosen by Jesus, after all. They'd been selected as apostles. They'd been given unique power, unique opportunity. Obviously, they were better and more important than everyone else, right? Maybe the inner circle, Peter, James, and John are like, guys, it's obviously us. We got to go on a mountain with Jesus. And, oh, wait, we can't tell you about it. You guys wouldn't. Yeah. See, we know stuff you don't know. We have, we, know, we have insider information you guys don't get to be a part of. So one of these days, you'll be, you'll be smart enough, be special enough to know what we know. Too bad for you. Whatever the case, here's Jesus. Picture Jesus walking in the front and the 12 disciples kind of lagging behind having this dispute. They're in the back seat of the van squabbling, right? Sort of, Mommy, he touched me, right? They're having these arguments like kids in the back seat of the van while you're on family vacation. Anybody else kind of understand how that goes? I had, uh, had four siblings growing up, and uh, that, that was a common thing to have little fights in the back seat and having to be separated and... Um, that probably didn't happen for anyone else because y'all were, were little angels growing up and your kids are, are, are perfect. But that, that's the sense here. They're squabbling in the back seat and they're thinking Jesus is up front, doesn't really know what's going on. Well, verse 47, Jesus, knowing the thought of their heart, perceiving the thought of their heart, notice he doesn't just overhear the conversation. It's not that when Jesus heard them, but he knew what was going on in their hearts. Only by pride cometh contention, right? This is rooted not just in a, an external dispute, but by, from an internal pride, internal depravity. So Jesus is going to teach them about true greatness. Uh, he's not saying that desire for greatness is inherently wrong, but he's saying you guys need the right kind of greatness. So what does he do? He gets an object lesson, verse 47. He takes a child and he sets the child by him. So that, that's a place of prominence. He brings the kid and puts the child right next to himself, being like, this child is, is next to me, is on the same level with me. I, I, I'm stooping to the level of the child. I'm bringing the child up to my level. Spending time with children in Jewish culture, understand this, was regarded as a complete waste of time. There's statements in the Mishnah that, go, that, are, that are to that sort of conclusion that spending time with kids and just chatting with people who don't know anything, that's a complete waste of time. Children should be seen and not heard, and they're just, they're not worth anything. Children, after all, aren't going to further your career, right? They're not going to sort of raise your social status in any way whatsoever. They're not going to make you appear more prominent. There's a lot of people, right, who simply network and have friendships with people who they view as being able to help them. Well, I'll hang out with this guy, and this guy knows the boss, and maybe he can put a good word in for me and get me a promotion. And it's all about angling and trying to get more prominence and be seen as being important because I'm with the right types of people. If I'm seen as hanging out with this person, then people will be, oh, wow, you've got influence. Well, guess what? Kids don't have influence. 
They're not going to make people be like, oh, wow, you're important and you're special. And yet here we see Jesus, the greatest person in human history, scooping up a child in his arms, making time for those who could do nothing for him. This child could do nothing for Jesus. This child could do nothing to advance Jesus' fame. And that's the lesson. When he says at the end of verse 48, he that is least among you, the same shall be great. He's saying the one who is willing to associate with the lowly, the one who is willing to serve those who can do nothing for you in return. He says that's true greatness. True greatness is not found in seeking influence, but is found in abandoning pretense. It's found not in exalting yourself, but in humbling yourself. Not in asserting and demanding your rights and your freedom, but in setting aside your rights and the freedom for the good of others. Actually, that's precisely what Philippians, 1, or Philippians 2 verses 1 to 5 tells us. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Think about how different the discourse in the church in the year 2021 would be if that were our mentality. Okay, I know I've got my rights and my freedoms and all of these things, but I'm going to think about how my decisions are going to benefit other people. I'm going to think about how what I do influences others. I'm, a, I'm, I'm sad to say that I don't see a whole lot of that going on. Everyone's thinking, I've got my rights and I'm going to assert my rights and do what I want, and it's all about me, and I don't care if it affects other people. Philippians 2 says, actually, how it affects other people really matters. Look not every man on your own things, but every man also on the things of others, on those who would be regarded as least children. So what Jesus is saying, verse 48, whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. His true greatness is found in stooping to the level of a child, welcoming the child. He says, you welcome that child with hospitality and with open arms. He says, if you're doing that in my name, it's as if you received me. It's as if you welcomed me. Now, that, that in my name, it's not just attacked on, I receive you in the name of Jesus, it's some kind of formula. And the sense of that is upon my name, because of my name. He says, you do it because of your relationship with me. It's as if you received me. So it's not just anybody out there who's nice to kids is, is, is saved and goes to heaven. But he's saying those who welcome children because of the name and the work and the, the example of Jesus Christ... It's as if you welcomed me. Right, that's amazing, right? You go out and serve someone because of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of other motives for serving people. You can serve people so you can Instagram it. You can serve people so you can virtue signal about it. You can serve people in the hopes that when it's your time to be served, they'll be there to help you. But if you say, I'm going to serve someone else because Jesus Christ is a servant. I'm going to serve other people because of what he has done for me. It's as if you received me and those who received me. It's as if you welcomed my father himself. What a statement that is. So as disciples, forget about your rank. Christians, forget about your rank and say, I'm going to serve people even if they can do nothing for me. That's true greatness. That's true humility. As we, as we live life in the ordinary, the day in, the day out, on this side of heaven, it requires humility. Right? It requires humility. It requires that I... Set aside pursuing my own interests and say, I'm going to put the interests of other people first. It's not just about me and whether or not I want to do certain, but I'm going to go serve God's people and come out and be part of his family and worship with his people for their good. Now, verse 49 and verse 50 kind of gives us a contrast. And John answered and said, it links up this account with the one right before it. So this is not like a, a brand new thing weeks later. But I think John hears that and he's thinking, 
Ah, but here's some exceptions to that Jesus. Now, it could be that John's feeling bad about what he did with rebuking the guy who cast out demons. But I think he's still trying to hang on to, yeah, that might be true, Jesus. But of course, there are some people who aren't as cool as we are, right? Who aren't part of our group. Master, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and we forbade him because he, not, he followeth not with us. He's not part of our group, and so we stopped him. John's got sort of this elitist intolerance. So it might be that, yeah, we're supposed to welcome kids, but, hey, we're still more important than the, the, that other riffraff, right, out there. Uh, there's other people who don't do it just like we do it. I think it's ironic that this account, the, this, the section we looked at, began with the apostles being unable to cast out a demon, and it ends with them getting on to someone who was able to do what they could not do themselves. All right, it's kind of jealousy is what's going on. We failed over. Here's someone succeeding at what we failed to do. Well, we're going to just find a way to critique and criticize and cut them down. They're upset with a guy who successfully accomplished what they recently failed to do. That's called jealousy. And by the way, jealousy is absolutely poisonous in the life of the church. Well, so-and-so got recognized for what they did. I did the same thing, and I got overlooked. Or... Yeah, between pastors, my church has so many hundreds of people, your church doesn't have as many people, and therefore you've got nothing useful to say. Uh, there, there's very much that that goes on among Christians. Is Oh, you're a megachurch pastor, you obviously must be far more spiritual, far more blessed by God than, than the guy with a little church. Hey, listen, we should be able to celebrate that Christ is preached. By the way, that can go the opposite, that can be a false humility. He's got a megachurch, he obviously must be compromised, right? That can go the other way, that the smaller you are, the more godly you are. And this sort of sense of jealousy and competition among the people of God, it's evil. Think of how Paul responded in, in Philippians 1. He's in prison in Rome, and there's people running around preaching the gospel just to kind of take a dig at Paul. Some are doing it just because they don't like Paul, and they're like, huh, he can't preach right now, so we'll go preach. You know how he responded? He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. We look around at churches throughout the city of Mobile. No, there are, you know, not every church in the city preaches the gospel. There are some churches this morning that are preaching a false gospel. There are churches that are believing in a false Christ. But there are also other churches in Mobile that preach the Bible, that preach the gospel, that believe in salvation by grace through faith. And they might do church a little bit differently than we do. They might have music that's different than ours, or use a translation that's different than ours, or their auditorium is set up different than ours, or they don't have Baptist on their sign. We can look at them and be critical and, oh, I can't believe they're doing this. Listen, we ought to rejoice that Christ has preached. I say this just about every Sunday, that we're not the only church in Mobile that teaches and preaches the gospel and believes in Jesus. It's good for us to be reminded that, that we're not the only ones who do things right, that we don't have a special corner on truth. But God's got, a, got people all over this world who are doing his work in his name. Uh, now, notice John's statement in verse 49. They're criticizing the, the, the guy because he followeth not with us. Uh, this is not some, some guy who's just randomly using the name of Jesus as a sort of a, 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 a miracle, magical phrase and doesn't care about Jesus. If you read in Acts 19, you find about these guys called the sons of Sceva. They didn't believe in Jesus. They tried to cast out demons in his name, and it didn't end well for them, right? The demon-possessed the, the demon man attacked them, and they run out of the house. Their clothes get ripped off. They get beat up. Um, the man in the question here truly is a follower of Jesus, all right? So this is not just someone who is claiming the name Christian, and he's like, oh, I'll just have a wide, big-hearted, ecumenical mindset. No, this is someone who truly follows Jesus, who truly has faith in Jesus, who truly has divine power to cast out demons. He's just not part of our group, all right? Uh, what matters is this. Do people follow Christ? 
Not do they follow Christ exactly in my little group. So Jesus is not promoting a a, a limp-wristed ecumenical where everybody's accepted and there's a wideness in God's mercy and we're all going to heaven, let's sing kumbaya. No, this is someone who has submitted to the demands of the gospel. Someone who has taken up the cross, who's denied himself, who's following Jesus, who's trusting in him. And God's working through, even though he's not part of the particular group the disciples are in. Christ has preached. Life in the valley is going to require humility among God's people. Not pride in thinking, who's going to be the greatest? Not pride in thinking, we alone are doing things right. But a humility that says, hey, the one who's greatest is the one who serves. So I'm just going to shut up and put my head down and serve. And whether or not I get recognized, that's okay. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that we alone are the only ones through whom God can work. But I'm going to celebrate any and every triumph of the kingdom, no matter who that comes through. Humility, by the way, is going to recognize that I need other people. John kind of has a lone ranger mentality. Hey, we're, it's our group and just us 12 and no more, us four and no more is the mentality. Humility recognizes I need other Christians. I need other Christians. I need other believers to walk through the Christian life with me. It's absurd to try to live the Christian life on your own. It's absurd as someone... A quarterback walking out onto a football field by himself without anyone else being like, I'm the quarterback, I can win the game by himself. No, no quarterback will win the game by himself without a team. And no Christian will succeed in the Christian life without a church family, without one anothering going on, without praying for one another and exhorting one another and encouraging one another. Too many Christians want to trudge along through the Christian life on their own. But guess what? God designed us to need each other. To need other believers. To need to, we need to hear each other sing. We need to be able to see each other's faces. We need to be able to sit down and share each other's burdens. It's not just, I'm going to watch a sermon online, though. I'm thankful for streaming technology on a day like today when we've got storms and sicknesses going on. We need each other. Not to, not to compete with each other, but to complete each other. Not to pull each other down, but to raise each other up. I really think it is pride that keeps us isolated, thinking, I, I don't need other people. I can do the Christian life on my own. I, I, I just love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's pride. Humility says, I need other people in my life. I need other people who are following Jesus along with me. And I'm willing to humble myself and be with them and help them. Listen, that's life in the valley. That's life in the ordinary. That's where we live the Christian life. It's not on the Mount of Transfiguration. Though we sometimes do get those moments, and praise God for those moments. But most of the time, it's Tuesday afternoon, and the, dishes, the sink is overflowing with dirty dishes, right? It's, it's Wednesday when you go into work, and there's some kind of catastrophe that you've got to clean up. You've got to work those extra hours. It's coming home on, on Thursday evening from a long day, and you, you, you're short with your spouse, and you're trying to work through that kind of thing. That's where we live the Christian life. We live the Christian life when we're feeling sick. We live the Christian life on rainy days. We live the Christian life in the ordinary. How do we do it to the glory of God? We must rely on God's power. Not not our own. I can't do this on my own. I've got to rely on his power. I've got to accept his plan, knowing that every step I take is ordained by God, and he's got a plan to result in my ultimate glorification. I've got to live a life of humility, interacting with other saints. One of the greatest resources God has given you to live life in the valley is the church. He's given us his promises, we trust those. He's given us his plan, we trust that. And he's given us his people, we rely on them. So will you glorify God by 
living that kind of life in the ordinary. Father, we praise you for your power that sustains us, that holds us, that strengthens us.